Thank you very much, students and administration and faculty. I just want to tell you that I have really received a warm welcome. I do feel bad about one thing, and that is I was not able to spend more time with the guys out on the baseball field and here in the basketball floor. Maybe some other time I'll have that privilege. I've had the opportunity to get to know some of you and a little bit, and I just want to thank you for your cordial spirit. I just tell you a little bit about my family, since many of you come up and ask how many children we have and what they're doing and that type of thing. They're praying for me today. They go to the board every day, and they have a list of where I am. And I have Mark, who's a basketball coach and athletic director of a college. I have Stan, who is a pastor in Indianapolis. And I have Tim, who is studying in a Ph.D. program in clinical psych at the University of Georgia. Then we have Wendy, and Wendy lives in Naperville, Illinois, and she has three children, and they have their own business. And Jennifer is 31 years old. She's a scientist, a graduate of the University of South Florida, and she also has her own business. Her husband works for DuPont. And then I have little Amy. Little Amy is a legal secretary, a mother of two, and they're living in Rome, Georgia. And I feel very humbled and thankful that I can stand before you and tell you that they're our greatest cheerleaders, and they live for the Lord, and we're really grateful to God for that. Now, I've had the privilege of also meeting first and second and third Mark while I was here, and I've met Gail and some of the rest of the staff, and they're really great people. And then I had the privilege of staying with uh, David Maddox uh, in his home with his beautiful wife, Kim, and Taylor and Nate, and I just about had a revival staying with them. I tell you, it was it was really super. Uh, you know, David Maddox, he, he's uh, quite a guy, but I'll tell you one thing, he outmarried himself when he married Kim. Kim Kim's a beautiful girl, right. So thank you very much for allowing me to to come here and spend this time with you and had a good time at the seminary yesterday and a good group of about 160 or 70 students there studying for the Word, the Word of God and it was really, really a great experience. Well, there I was standing on ground that I had never stood on before. And I was searching to and fro because I was trying to find that thing that they told me that if I looked at it, I would be reminded once again that that man, that man that is buried in the ground, had robbed hell of over one million souls. And as I was walking around, finally my eyes came down upon that marker. And I cried out with a loud voice, Honey! Honey, it's over here! She came rushing over. And she grabbed a hold of my hand and I put my hand on her shoulder and we leaned down and, and we read it. It was the epitaph. And these were the words, And the world is passing away 
and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. First John 2 and 17. And then in unison, in a rather quiet voice, we read it again. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We looked in one another's faces, and we're reminded that there lying in that spot was Dwight Lyman Moody a shoe salesman that was converted to Jesus Christ in the city of Chicago. Never in my ever wildest dream would I ever think at 20 years of age I would come to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. Never would I have ever dreamed that I would lay my baseball glove down. And God would lead me into that which I had never heard of before, a full-time Christian ministry. And then little did I ever dream that I would have the privilege of attending Moody Bible Institute. And there in Northampton, Massachusetts, we bowed together, my wife and I, and thanked God for the remembrance of a man that was again reminding everyone that walked by that stone that the world that he was living in was passing away. I stand before the student body and I say to you what I said on Wednesday. If you're a person of average intelligence or above, you'll be just like the professors at Iowa University. When they sat before me and looked up like little boys and girls and said, how would you best describe the world in which you live? And I started off, as you remember, and I said, I think I would start off by saying that the world that we are living in is a world that can best be described as, as very uptight. Secondly, full of unrest. Thirdly, extremely unhappy. Fourthly, very ungodly. And fifthly, the world that we're living in is coming unglued. And as I looked out of the professor's faces, I could see some of them nodding with assent. Is there any other way we could describe the world in which we are living? This world that's passing away? I stand before this student body and I say to you, yes, I think we would also have to say that if you were really going to evaluate it properly, we would say that the world that we are living in can best, best be described as most of it being underdeveloped. You don't, again, have to be some kind of a rocket scientist to understand that 60% of the people's population live in underdeveloped countries in the world. Those underdeveloped countries, many of those people make less than 200 U.S. dollars a year. So underdeveloped that so many of them come to the place where they are only able to just eke out a living. Many of those people live, work 60 hours a week to provide 
one meal a day for their people. Is there any other way we describe the world that we're living in that's passing away? It's not only underdeveloped, it's secondly, it's underfed. I have read it with my eyes in the Wall Street Journal, and you have too. Over half of the world's population today is, is struggling because of malnutrition. Over 20 million Africans have died of starvation in the last 15 to 20 years. All you have to do is turn on the television and can be repulsed by the pictures today as we see those in Somalia. Those little boys and girls, those daddies and mothers who are so underfed that they're dying of starvation. I say to you, the world is passing away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And I'm not going to go on and describe the world. You go ahead and develop it, but allow me to say one other thing. I think we could probably best describe the world as a world that is unreached. It is a truism that with all of the television and with all the modern day communications and with all of the giant towers that are called Christian, and they really are, that's communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ worldwide, yet over half of the world's population has never ever once heard the true message of Jesus Christ. It's basically still unreached. And that's the reason why I stood here on Wednesday morning and I ask you the question, have you ever heard a grown man cry? I'd like for you to turn to that text where we were on Wednesday, 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, we are again reminded that this is the greatest treatise in all of literature on the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We said to you, secondly, that all Christian doctrine rests upon the authenticity and historicity of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we said to you on Wednesday morning that we bumped into a verse that seems to be completely out of context. I mean, at first glance, you can read it one, two, and three times. You stop and ask yourself the question, why in the world it is that verse where it is? But Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit of God, though developing the theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was extremely nostalgic when it came to the believers in Corinth. And so just as you have heard grown men cry like my pastor when he buries his third daughter in a four-year period of time, So the Apostle Paul cries out as a grown man. And the first thing he cries, we dealt with on Wednesday morning, it is, Awake! 
I shared with you, unlike all the other words that are translated awake in the New Testament, this stands all by itself. For carrying a connotation in this word, I believe there is a threefold announcement that must be made. He is crying awake because, first of all, there is a crisis. That's inherent within this word, awake. He is not saying awake out of sleep. That's not the Greek word. He is saying awake because there's a crisis among the Christians there in Corinth. The second thing it re-infers is that there is an emergency among the Christians at Corinth. Inherent within that word, awake, emergency. And thirdly, it carries the concept of urgency. And so, when we hear this grown man cry from this passage of Scripture that is by and large dealing with the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his first cry is, Help! Awake! And then as we went into the text, it says, Awake to righteousness. And we said at this point that the Apostle Paul was crying, Holiness. I have never in all of my life experience thus far had the privilege of standing in your presence or anybody else's presence and sing together. We are hidden or hide me in thy holiness. This business of holiness or righteousness was such a deep concern to the Apostle Paul because the church was torn apart with unrighteousness. That which is the keynote feature of every man who has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness is that he begins to walk a brand new walk. He begins to talk a brand new talk. He becomes a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things begin to peel away from His life. The dynamic of the Holy Spirit of God that resides within now is taking control, giving Him new appetites and new desires. And the Christians at Corinth had experienced it at all. But it's very easy to backslide. And though he does not use the word backslidden here in his first letter to Corinth, he wants to cry out in the word righteousness, holiness. If you take your Bibles now and look down in verse 34, you are going to see that it says there, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. 
Sin is that which has been described as uh, with by many theologians and Bible teachers is that natural proclivity of man that constantly finds him falling short of what is expected of him. It is inherent within the Greek word harmartia. In fact, uh, the theologians tell us that if you're going to study the doctrine of sin, it's called harmartiology. It's gotten the believers in trouble in Corinth, and it's got believers in trouble all throughout world history. And the Apostle Paul says to them, and do not sin. He would later write. He would later write another letter to Corinth to the believers there in Second Corinthians, the seventh chapter. And if you would look at it, I would like for you, if you would, please. He becomes extremely direct with his second letter, and in Second Corinthians, the seventh chapter, he says, "Therefore, having these promises." He's talking about the promises that he has shared in the previous chapter. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now that's an interesting thing. The Apostle Paul in his direct manner being led by the Holy Spirit of God, you can't get any more direct than that. He says... Beloved, cleanse yourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now, I personally believe that that little phrase, flesh and spirit, was Paul's way of encompassing the totality of all that makes up man. He is flesh and he is spirit. And the flesh can get involved with the filthiness and the spirit can get involved with filthiness and he says, cleanse yourselves. And I like the way he concludes verse 1 where he says, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Someday, I would like to come back and preach five messages on the phrase, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. You say, is it possible, Brother Kempton, is it possible for me as a collegiate to live in this 20th century and not be defiled by the wicked one? Not have my flesh corrupted by those things that Satan has? So beautifully portrayed for the collegiates at the Master's College? Well, I think probably in order for me to answer that properly, and in the best way, we should turn to the Word of God. We will be sobered as we turn together to 1 John, the third chapter. And I'd like for you to turn there just briefly, and we want to look at that this morning. 1 John, the third chapter. In 1 John, the third chapter, we are reminded of the beautiful love of God that was manifested and bestowed upon all of us who are called the children of God. And then in verse 3 it says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, and you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then we are really sobered as we hear these final words from the pen of John. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, those series of verses has developed a series of theologies or a system of theology that is, is known in the modern world, in the Western world, as the holiness movement. I, I had a friend who once told me that he had not sinned in 12 years. And my response to him was, I want to go and talk to your wife. But he has Scripture on his side, who, the, who he that is born of God does not sin. What in the world is he talking about here in this passage of Scripture? And, and, and back there in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 34, our major text for these two chapels, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. The number one problem at the Master's College is sin. The number one problem in your life is sin. The number one problem in my life is sin. And we're all born of God. As you begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, I believe that it can be announced without reservation that what the Apostle Paul was crying out as a grown man was, Help! Holiness! Habit! Do not habitually practice sin. I believe that's a teaching of New Testament literature. I believe that's the thrust that the Apostle Paul taught when it comes to the doctrine of sin. He has stated in that passage that I read, He that is righteous practices righteousness. And our great practice as collegiates, as young people, is primarily we practice righteousness. And it's not our habit to live carelessly and flippantly and lightly as it relates to sin and the impact of sin. In fact, we announce, just as it says in Scripture, He that loves the Lord hates sin. All you have to do is stand up on your tiptoes, not too high, to look out upon the masses of 5.3 billion people 
and see the devastation and destruction and the horrible condition of a world that is inebriated and sick with sin. Oh, the results of sin. But those who are in Christ Jesus, their habit is to practice righteousness and do not practice sin. So I believe that the Apostle Paul, when he says, and sin not, he is crying out and do not habitually practice sin. Well, what happens if sin invades our life and we don't tell anyone it's a secret sin and, and, and it's something that we're ashamed of. It's something that hurts our, our fellowship with God. And, and when we're all by ourselves, we cry out, Oh God, please, please forgive me. That's the spirit of 1 John 1.9. In fact, James says as it relates to sin, be mournful and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. It's not something where you come and sashay into the presence of God and say, God, I goofed again today. Those terms are the terms that they use at a funeral. One of the big problems in the Western world today is how born-again Christians view sin. All you have to do is start living back where I live in the East. All you have to do is start living where you live on the West, my friend. And you know the destruction of sin upon mankind. You come along to me with me and you, you go two and three times a year into the prison and they close those doors and they lock you in and then all of a sudden those guys, they'll start coming. And their story is they got trapped by sin. And those Christians at Corinth had been trapped in idolatry, in fornication, in adultery, in exemplifying the gifts way out of proportion, in saying, man, I'm a follower of John. I'm a follower of Peter. Hey, man, I'm one of those Apollos guys. And then they got all shook up because they started comparing one another with each other. Or each other with one another. As you begin to take a look at this little verse, you also come down in verse 34 and you read the following words, Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. You're getting ready to have a missions week. You're going to evacuate the campus and probably five, six hundred of you are going to go out in waves. And you're going to go one-on-one. -on -one. You're going to be confronted with pagans. God bless you in that effort. 
That's one of the reasons why I chose to speak on this passage of Scripture. Perhaps the Holy Spirit of God could use it to prepare your hearts. I not only hear grown man crying help and holiness and habit, but in these words, for some do not have the knowledge of God, I hear him cry out for heart. I mean burdened on his heart. Were those lost and dying people at Corinth burdened upon his heart was that group of people who, who evidently lost their burden and had no compassion for the pagans of the world in that city. And he reminded them, some have not the knowledge of God. The reason why there's an emergency, a crisis, the reason why there's urgency is because some of those people are dying without God and without hope. Do you have any chance if you die without God? God sent His Son. And if God didn't believe in hell, one of the greatest atrocities ever perpetrated upon any human being was to send His only begotten Son to die on a hill called Calvary. The reason why He died, my friend, is to pay a price to give His...